Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher, and as always, I'm joined by... Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher, this is my 15th year in the classroom, and this, of course, is All the Above. And here we take a look at education news and give you some analysis because we're not really getting a lot of that from our mainstream media these days. Jeff, what's on the agenda? Well, we have a good one today, Manuel. Uh, for our main segment, we have a fascinating seminar. Um, we have a special guest who's the director of a brand new hot off the presses documentary. And I know, I 100% know with certainty, all of our audience is going to love this film. Uh, it is called Can We All Get Along? And it is just a fascinating uh, dive into issues around school segregation, um, specifically here uh, in the city in which we film, in Pasadena. And so um, we're going to dig into that topic uh, in more detail um, with, with Pablo when, he, when he's here with us. But uh, it's going to be a great conversation. This is an issue we know a lot of folks have wanted to dig uh, deeper into as well. So we're going to go there today. Facts, facts. We love facts on all the above. And of course, if you're watching this on YouTube, please remember to hit that thumbs up and subscribe if you haven't already. And if you're checking us out on Facebook, hit that like button, share this with your friends. And if you're listening to the audio podcast, please rate us. Give us your most positive rating possible because we sure do appreciate it. And up next is our Do Now. Here we are at the Do Now, which is a time in our episode where we take a look at recent headlines in education, particularly looking at some news that you might have missed. Jeff, how are we doing the Do Now today? Well, Manuel, uh, you know, reading is fundamental. Indeed. Uh, vocabulary is key, so we got a we got a lexicon. Ooh, lexicon. Let's get that terminology going. Yeah, get to learn some new words. All right, let's see what the first lexicon term is for today. Hmm. First term is pathetic. Mm, pathetic, as in uh, like, um, you know, Betsy DeVos's rationale for schools oh, needing guns in, in case of in case of bears. I mean, bears like, are real pathetic, right? Bears are a real threat. Jeff. <laughs> I mean, there might be bears. Grizzlies there might be. Yes. Stalking around our schools. Shout out to Betsy. Shout out, Betsy. All right. Uh, <laughs> but no, not that kind of pathetic. Um, this pathetic refers to some feedback that mm. a teacher left for one of her students on his um, math assignment. Say it ain't so. It is so, Jeff. Mm. It is quite so. A second grader in Pennsylvania was assigned a math assignment featuring 50 subtraction problems. The feedback he allegedly received from his teacher has garnered considerable attention. Written in red ink above the seven-year-old's work were the words, and I quote, absolutely pathetic. He answered, 13 in three minutes. Sad. Actually, let me read that the way it was intended. Absolutely pathetic. He answered 13 in three minutes. Sad. The student's father took to Facebook to voice his displeasure with his son's teacher at Valley View Elementary School. And the teacher is identified as Alyssa Rupp Bayonek. And a petition has been going around, which has garnered 19,000 signatures so far, calling for her removal. Jeff, what was your reaction to this story about the second grade teacher and her pathetic feedback? 
Yeah, so I think I had two immediate reactions. The first one was like literal, like face palm. Like, mm-hmm. no, she didn't. She <laughs> like, did. Because I can understand the frustration of an educator who's working really hard and you get a piece of work back from a student and you're disappointed in it. And I can even understand the thinking like, oh, my God, I'm so frustrated. Like, how could this child have only done 13 problems right. in three minutes? We've been working on this all year or whatever. But you just can't write that kind like you literally cannot write that kind of feedback on a student's work. It's insulting. It's inappropriate. It's unprofessional. It's totally unhelpful if your goal is to provide <laughs> any type of feedback to the student that's going to help them get better at doing subtraction. Um, you know, what also doesn't come through in the reading of what she wrote is the mm. frowny face that was Man. on the paper next to that comment. So so my, my first reaction generally was that. My second reaction after I read her comment was like, it reads like a Trump tweet. It does. You know, these sort of fragmented, like, sad. Only 13 in three minutes, sad, yes. loser. <laughs> right? Yes. Like, it, I was like, is this the Trumpification of teacher feedback uh, on students? It work? might be. You are trying here? to bring out the trolls yet again. <laughs> I am. Come see me, trolls. Come see Him, me. not I. Um, <laughs> what I was really thinking about in terms of um, her feedback, just looking specifically about what she was upset about, I suppose, is he answered 13 in three minutes. Now I'm not a math teacher, I'm not a elementary teacher. Um, this is a seven year old and it just sounds like he was given, I guess, three minutes to answer as many subtraction problems as possible. Yes. And I question, as a history teacher who teaches secondary, I question the, I guess, legitimacy and in in, in just the, how beneficial it is to have students race through subtraction problems and, and put them under this, this well, feeling I, of anxiety. I will I will push back on that. Push back think, on that. Particularly at the early elementary level, um, these exercises are often th- um, called like sprints or you know, okay. fluency assessments. So what if a student has really, some kind of anxieties or like the, the pressure of having to hurry up? Because that messes me well, up and I'm so an adult. It, so it's, I think if your teacher's going to tell you you're sad and pathetic, yes, and write a, a draw a little frown uh, face. In a, in a better context, the way these assessments are used, are um, not altogether different than the kind of things we do with like, um, you know, flashcards, maybe some of us did as youth, or the kind of things that, you know, we even do with like the alphabet, right? Mm-hmm. And just gaining fluency with, right. um, you know, with like simple rote uh, mathematical tasks that we should be able to accomplish and recognize really quickly. And so a lot of times in these assessments, there might even be like patterns of questions mm-hmm. that give the teacher information about like students' number sense, right? So you might have like, um, you know, uh, 13 minus three, um, you know, and then 13 minus four, and it, right? If like a so student- So you're saying is, the student's work was pathetic then? He didn't answer enough, Jeff? I'm saying it's a valid assessment. We don't need to go down that rabbit hole right now. It's a useful assessment tool, yeah. particularly at the early elementary level. So I don't want to critique well, that's good to know. that. Right. I want to say, her feedback score is like negative one because it's so bad. It's like the yeah. worst feedback I've ever it's, seen. I, I, I can imagine what this kid, seven-year-old, will be feeling next time he has any kind of math in yeah. front of him. Yeah. I mean, well, talk he about said, destroying. He said he was heartbroken. Man. Which I'm sure was not a coached response at all uh, from a second grader. But Man. Yes. All right. So there is a counter uh, petition, just to be fair. Um, there are supporters, allegedly, of this teacher. That counter petition has garnered around 900 uh, signatures as compared to the 19,000 
um, and the petition calling for her removal. And um, that counter petition has um, her name spelled incorrectly, incorrectly a couple times. We don't really know who's behind it. But yeah, there's folks who think maybe if we're just maybe kids are just too soft these days. And I don't know. I guess someone's saying that because somebody's saying this. No, I don't think you fire <laughs> no. somebody right off the bat for doing this. Uh -huh. But it's definitely like a stern talking to in the principal's office and a letter to file and like a, this yeah. kind of crazy stuff should never happen again. Stern like, talking to just, with exclamation points and frowning faces. And it said an adult can take it. An adult <laughs> can take it. Yes, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. exactly. All right. Let's move on to the next lexicon term. All right. Next term up, Manuel, is tragic. Man, very uplifting terms this time around. So we had pathetic. We have yeah, tragic. That's true. And this. Yeah. Yeah, and this yeah. is is a story that d is decidedly tragic, and uh, we're not gonna at all make light of this situation. Uh, tell us about this tragic story, Jeff. Yeah, so I think uh, some folks may have heard about this story. It was getting a little bit of buzz on social media, but but not a ton, and so we right. wanted to really elevate it. This um, story is about a young man um, named Nigel Shelby, and uh, last month, a 15-year-old high school teenager in Alabama. Um, by the name Nigel Shelby, died by suicide after being the target of homophobic bullying. Um, he uh, grew up in Huntsville, Alabama, and um, the, uh, the organization Rocket City Pride, which is a local LGBTQ pride organization, uh, said Nigel took his life because he was bullied for being gay. Uh, there are no words that can be said to make sense of this devastating news. So... Um, the, I think there's a couple of big big reasons to bring this up. One is that these kinds of stories are all too common, particularly right. among LGBTQ youth, particularly among black LGBTQ youth. Right. And, um, and this isn't a topic that we've uh, touched on at great depth, I think, yeah. on our show. So, um, well, what, what do you think here? Yeah, well, just heartbreaking, but not at all surprising. Like, like you mentioned, this is a story that we've become all too familiar with. And when we've discussed bullying, you know, I think we had a story discussing bullying after the uh, 2016 election, and, and people still perceive bullying to be uh, more the, the the hallway, lunchroom, gym type, like roughing up of a kid. Um, but we have to really expand for those who haven't yet expand their their view and their thinking about bullying because so much of this also takes place online, and especially in the case where high school is already difficult, being a ninth grader is already tremendously difficult. Uh, dealing with bullying. In in general is already tremendously difficult but then dealing with bullying for um, being gay is added and then you add the the racial component to it and the amount of homophobia uh, that exists in um, black and brown communities and just like add it all up and it's just a tragic tragic story and um, the Center for Social Equity reports that 74% 74% of LGBTQ youth feel unsafe on their school grounds. And, and as educators, um, you know, I'm a classroom teacher and my job is to teach history. And as an educator, it's one of those reminders of just how important it is that I am uh, creating safe space for my students so that not only uh, students who are being bullied could feel safe um, in my room, but also students who know that bullying is happening could open up to me about it and let me know and help me out because a lot of the stuff that's happening online is really difficult for a teacher to see and, and students today, just today a student was telling me about it, uh, his three different Instagram accounts and there's just levels to the anonymity be between them and, and just like we're really out of the loop as educators no matter how in tune and plugged in you are on uh, social media wise and um, we definitely have to do more to protect our youth particularly our LGBTQ youth. Yeah, yeah I think uh 
you know, what was really, apart from just the, the obviously like personal tragedy of Nigel's individual right. story, uh, for me was just how, uh, how frequent of a phenomenon this is, right? And so um, the, the organization, The Trevor Project, which some of our, um, our viewers may be familiar with, it's probably one of the nation's leading um, LGBTQ youth support organizations that mm -hmm. specifically focuses on suicide prevention as a, as a part of, of what they do, um, publishes just some, uh, some jaw-dropping statistics about suicide in youth and suicide in LGBTQ youth in general. Um, and I was astounded to hear that um, suicide is, and depending on the data point that you look at over the last right. like six or seven years, is either the number two or the number three leading cause of death for young people between the ages of 10 and 24, Man. which like on its own is bananas. Right. Like kids are killing themselves at, you know, or, or suicide is killing right. more kids than, you know, car accidents and all these other things. Right. Uh, so, so that was just staggering. And then when you consider the fact that LGBTQ youth are multiple times more likely to have suicidal ideations, consider or report considering self-harm, and to ultimately complete the act of suicide than are, um, you know, than are their peers, uh, I, I think it's just a, it's a, it's a, um, it's an alarming data point and one that I think uh, not only do we need to pay more attention to, but I think the the conversation that we're having as a society about equality and about recognizing and accepting and supporting the dignity of all people and mm -hmm. all young people in our schools has life and death implications, right? In a in a very literal sense, and so um, it was a it was one of those moments where I was like, I've I've read some of these statistics before, but it. It just, yeah. you know, with Nigel's story and seeing his picture and, you know, um, it just it made me think about the data in a, in a refreshed uh, way with a, a new sense of urgency. So, um, you know, re rest in peace, Nigel. And Indeed. we've certainly got a lot of work to do. Indeed. All right, Jeff. Final lexicon term for today's, you know, final term. Final term is draconian. Mm, your favorite. Yes, I've used that quite a few times. Yes. Uh, yes, okay. So uh, draconian, I, I enjoy this word. It makes me think of dragons every time I say it. I don't think that's in the yes. entomology, but it just makes me think of dragons. So I like it. <laughs> All right, so draconian in this sense is in reference to what some parents in California are calling a new effort to ensure that children across California are receiving their vaccinations. Now, of course, measles outbreak has been in the news um, of late and the CDC reports that uh, me cases of, of measles have are on pace for a record breaking number for 2019 uh, for a disease that hasn't has been declared eradicated way back in the year 2000. Uh, so in California, a new bill is up to curb measles cases and that bill would give the state control over which children are exempt from mandatory vaccination. So in California, like in a lot of states, if your child is going to a public school, they have to receive vaccinations. And in California, there is an exemption. There's a medical exemption, which has been more and more popular since the passage of a 2015 California bill that outlawed exemptions for personal beliefs. So the 2015 effort tried to get rid of this personal belief exemption and mandate that students get vaccinated unless they had a medical exemption. And because of that, the uh, number of students entering kindergarten 
with a medical exemption from vaccines has increased threefold. So the new bill is an effort to make sure that medical exemption is um, decided upon by the states. Yeah. What do you think? So I have real strong feelings about this, man. Well, mm-hmm. and I give, um, I have very little patience and tolerance for the anti-vaxxer crowd. Okay. Um, I consider the anti-vaxxer crowd to be like the climate change denier crowd. Mm. It's a it's a free country. You're welcome to your beliefs, but your beliefs have nothing to do with responsible public policy and with um, you know uh, the the way that we should be thinking about how to um, protect the public and eradicate these dangerous diseases, right? Um, and so people may may disagree with me, and you can go right ahead and disagree with me. But um, you know, gravity is real, climate change is real, and vaccines prevent things like the measles. So a um, couple big ideas behind this that I think mm. people need to grasp. One is the idea of herd immunity, which has become a more popular term now. Mm-hmm. Some people are are becoming more aware of this, um, but the importance of the vast, vast majority of us getting vaccinated is not only for ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. It's not only so that you and I don't get measles, right? but it's so that the people who are vulnerable within our population who either can't be vaccinated because they're too young, because they have some other compromising you right. know, immune issue or An actual medical or exemption, right? Um, um, that enough of us are, are vaccinated around those folks so that the disease cannot actually effectively be transmitted to them. So somewhere on earth there might be someone with measles, but there's not enough of us around them right. who can transmit the disease that the vulnerable folks can can actually catch it. The second thing about this that is crazy to me is people's fears about vaccines that go so deep. And I'm listen, I'm one to be suspicious of chemicals mm-hmm putting into our bodies as well. But it's ironic that people are so, um, you know, concerned and deeply disturbed about thimerosal and the vaccine and not deeply concerned about getting measles, which is a deadly (laughs) infection that you have an over 90% likelihood of contracting if you are even in the same room. You walk into a room with someone who has measles and you're unvaccinated, you have a 90% chance of catching measles, over 90% chance. And since you won't know you have measles for like four or five days, you'll be coughing it up and rubbing it around everyone else for four or five days, right? Uh, So... Anyways, I'm ranting and pontificating, but you get my point. Get your vaccines, people. This is not a joke. It's not a conspiracy. Vaccines save lives. Jeffrey Garrett, MD, dropping some science on us. Not an MD. Consult your doctor. Unfortunately, I couldn't hear you (laughs) over the sound of all the anti-vaxxers flooding our mentions. I went on on a riff. All that. What do you think, man? All that. Since we're having a conversation. Well, I mean, mean, you just took the words where I was going to say all that. The herd thing. Yeah. All that. Um, But... Just so folks know, this new bill uh, would require the California State Health Department to vet each standardized medical exemption form filled out by physicians and create a database of which physicians are um, filling out these forms to get these medical exemptions. So parents fled to the state house a little while ago to protest this new bill. And one parent at the protest called the bill draconian and called the supporters of it brainwashed. So, yeah. There you have it. Well, you know, climate change is a Chinese conspiracy and uh, the earth is flat also. All that. You're welcome to think those things too. All that. All that. All right, folks, that does it for this episode's Do Now. Please chime in in the comments and let us know what you think about any of these stories. And please remember to share this with your friends and um, hit that thumbs up button. All right, next up we have our seminar.
now it's time for today's seminar. Today's seminar is part three of our unofficial series on school segregation. Of course, in episode three, we talked about school choice as a driver of segregated schooling. And in episode 11, a few episodes ago, Jeffrey eloquently laid out America's long history of school segregation and the production of today's separate and unequal school system. Well, in today's episode, we're gonna take a look at one specific high school in Southern California, which serves as a case study for how this has all played out over time. Now, California is often thought of as being progressive and liberal and not having the same uh, level of, of racial strife as the rest of the country. Well, this film lays out the reality that California does have its own sordid history of school segregation. Now, the film focuses on John Muir High School, which is in the city of Pasadena. John Muir has produced such pivotal figures in the fight for racial equality as Jackie Robinson and Rodney King. Yes, that Rodney King. So how can the story of one specific high school inform our national discussion of school segregation and efforts to integrate? Well, to help us answer that question, we have joining us today Pablo Morales, who is the creator of a new film, um, Can We All Get Along? Uh, it's a fantastic documentary that explores uh, Pasadena's complex history around race and segregation and, and the public school system. Uh, the film weaves together Fascinating stories from alumni, from administrators, uh, one current teacher who shall go unnamed, and civic leaders um, uh, from John Muir, uh, and helps us kind of unpack this issue of uh, the, the funding, the support of excellent integrated schools here in California. Um, so for, um, for your viewing and listening pleasure, we're going to listen to um, the, the film's trailer now. For much of America, desegregation was a traumatic experience. But I went to school in Pasadena, California, where things worked out differently. I went to John Muir High School on the west side of Pasadena, and though it wasn't perfect, for the most part, we all got along. That you're able to go to games and to see generations that's very, very unique. I don't think that we have the same story as most of the high schools. The most extensive busing program ever undertaken in a city outside the South began in Pasadena, California. The year before busing, my local elementary school was almost entirely black. I would attend a year later. This is my class. We all grew up in, a, in an environment where integration was our norm. And we were just a laid back, you know, having a good time uh, group of kids. At my 30th high school reunion, I couldn't help but notice there was more diversity amongst the alumni than the current students. Public schools in Pasadena did not end up like this just because that's the nature of things. I had a good high school experience at Mirror, but would I send my son there today? I don't know. Okay, we're here with filmmaker Pablo Morales, whose new film, Can We All Get Along, is now available for viewing. We'll link that up on the website. Um, it's can, it's getalongfilm.com. 
Getalongfilm.com. Getalongfilm.com. Now, Pablo, let's begin with, um, how about you tell us a little bit about the setting of this film? So Pasadena, John Muir High School. Right. Give us a little bit of idea of what we're talking about. Um, well, John Muir High School was the second high school of Pasadena. Pasadena had been this very wealthy suburb of Los Angeles and had a uh, very prestigious uh, high school. But uh, along with that wealth came this need for labor. And the laborers that came into Pasadena, uh, primarily, uh, you know, you have your Japanese gardener, which is sort of a Southern, Southern California, um, you know, stereotype, uh, but your uh, African-American uh, um, house workers, for example, Jackie Robinson, who went to this uh, John Muir High School. I almost said this school. They don't know where this is, right? <laughs> who went to John Muir High School. Um, you know, her mom, his mom, his mom was a house worker. Mm. Um, and a big house on the Arroyo. Um, and then you also had the Mexican-American workers who had always been in Pasadena. Um, and because of the housing restrictions and redlining, they ended up in the northwest, primarily in the northwest section of the city. So since the population was getting large, and I think there was a concept that maybe we created a uh, high school just for them. This happened mm. a lot in the United States around the early uh, 20th century, the creation of technical high schools thinking that there's this population that isn't going to be needing college prep. Now, um, so John Muir Technical High School was created in the northwest part of Pasadena. And that's sort of the starting point of the story. So, uh, Pablo, first of all, I want to say I was uh, really fascinated by your film. Um, you know, I think for me, uh, I love documentary films in general, but this was a film, uh, having lived in, in the Los Angeles area for a few years now, that... Um, gave me that experience of seeing a place that I, I thought I knew and being able to see it with a whole new uh, perspective and a whole new lens. And I had no idea that Pasadena was such a fascinating uh, microcosm of all these complex racial issues uh, in America. Um, and in particular, uh, through the lens of school integration and the kind of uh, layers of policy and community beliefs and all kinds of stuff that intersect and make this a, a compelling story. So. In, from your perspective, why? Uh, what makes John Muir High School? What makes Pasadena um, such a such a important subject for telling this story about school segregation? Well, I think um, initially John Muir High School, because it was still in a majority white city and a relatively wealthy one at that, um, uh, was immediately integrated and it was uh, you you know a lot of people have talked about the 13% rule where as long as the school stays within 13% minority that it thrives what it really means is the money stays there but um, uh, the pop the there was a sense that because this was the school that had minorities that uh, it gave um, uh, within the within the city itself, it was seen as that other school, the the lesser of the two schools. And wh what ended up happening is when the demographics started to change through the up and through the 1960s, especially, which was a, a, an era of incredible both demographic and political changes, um, the school started edged towards not just 13 percent, but it was starting to get towards 50 percent. And there was a certain amount of panic, especially amongst the white parents uh, who had you had generations go to the school and, and wanted to maintain this quality because it was also a very high-performing school. Um, and there's like there's a lot of different stories here. There's the stories of the minority students who many of whom went on to become you know uh, uh, firsts 
you know, we know about Jackie Robinson, but the first female professional athlete who was African-American was a John Muir alum. The first, um, uh, the, the first Asian-American uh, CEO of a Fortune 500 company was a John Muir High alum. There were just, uh, I, I could go on, there's just a lot. Uh, and there was something about um, this being in a school with this racial diversity that produced really high quality students. Um, and when the um, government decided to actually um, actually go forward with seg uh, desegregation programs. Pasadena was the first one outside of the South because of this ine inequity between the two high schools. And it didn't change Muir all that much. It changed pa Pasadena High School tremendously. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, but the good part was that, uh, at least during those years, that it was, it was an era coming out of the 60s and in the 70s where we actually believed, whether it's politically or judiciously, that segregation was bad and we had to fix it, that this was a problem in our country and we wanted to do something about it. Um, then things started to change. And so John Muir became very much a focal point of how we can see how that's changed until now the demographics in, the, in this school, in John Muir High School, um, have now skewed to what Deride, people who deride public schools say an urban school, which is code for there are no white kids left kind yeah. of thing. We actually talked about that in a previous episode, yeah. different code words for urban and inner city schools that are no more geographically urban or inner city than schools that are considered not that. This is a suburban, Muir is a suburban school. So I love how in the film you detail how Muir went from being this um, quote unquote diverse, integrated setting in the 60s and 70s and how that was taken apart time, uh, piece by piece in different ways from um, actions from the government, from school choice to even as recent as great schools rankings and people using you know online systems to, to decide on whether or not a school is a school worthy of their, their child. Um, you name the film Can We All Get Along, which harkens back to that infamous Rodney King moment during the LA riots. And tell us a little bit about why you chose that as the title for this story of uh, the segregation of John Muir High School. Well, during the riots, I was living in Los Angeles. And um, I was, um, I guess initially, uh, as with a lot of people who went uh, through a integrated school from K through 12, I had the, uh, I was believing uh, um, that we were getting beyond race riots. Like race riots was a thing of the 60s. It right. was not a something in the 90s. Um, and then when I found out that Rodney King had not only grown up in my own neighborhood, um, but that he had been at Muir the same time I was, just a couple years behind, and it struck me that what he was saying when he said, can we all get along, wasn't some you know flippant remark. He was mm. actually remembering his own Hmm. youth you know and and it didn't take much you know i don't delve into it too much in the film because that's another film entirely right. but it didn't take me I, I i use a simple photograph of him in its 10th reunion which is a hmm. completely you know multiracial photograph of friends right uh and yet he has become an icon of some sort of black uh urban you know the negative would be the thug you know right. idea but this kid was a suburban kid who went skiing and went fishing, and he was a you know he was an Altadena kid. I mean, yeah. if you know Altadena, which is the closest suburb to Los to uh, Pasadena and the part of the Pasadena Unified School District. And um, this kid I knew, and this kid, I mean, if I was up there looking at race riots and 
I would say, can't we all get along? I mean, I, we can get along. That's the point. I did it my whole life, and this is ridiculous. So it struck me that that was an important point, and it was something that was known nationally. In fact, it was known internationally. So um, it was very, you know, easy for me to uh, find that as a as emotionally for me, it was a real jumping off point for the film. Yeah, I would say for for me watching the film, that was also one of the the moments that really resonated because, you know, growing up in the Midwest, I remember, you know, Rodney King at that press conference. And most of what what in my context was talked about about that moment was this sort of it was almost a joke, right? Like people thought he was he's, you know, sort of being like buffoonish or they're kind of manipulating him or some way. But to to hear the story behind who he was and what his experience was just completely flipped the kind of narrative that I had been, you know, fed as a, as a young teenager at the time, um, you know, about who this guy was and what message he was actually trying to communicate there. So um, one of, I think, several examples in the film of, of, of things that kind of uh, give you a very different perspective on stuff that might seem like something you already, already know well. Um, but I, I'm interested probably to get your take on, um, you know, you tell the story in the film of segregation through a very personal lens about like your own child and your own experience um, as an alumnus of this school. Um, what are some of your takeaways after having embarked on this project about kind of the issues of segregation here as they pertain to like the, the personal choices that you and other families make? Well, I think one of the, the startling things that happened, I, I became a father very late. I was already in my 40s. Um, most of my contemporaries had already had children and had chosen to go th through non-public school. Not just, not, and I, I, I know charters are public, but I think they're a second tier. There's, and, um, and nobody seemed to put the diversity of the student body of the schools that their children were going to as a priority. It had fallen off in terms of the perceptions of most of my liberal, relatively well-off friends, and that bothered me. And then when it came to my turn to have a child, I had to make that choice too. Um, so I had to really think, okay, is, is this something that is important for parents? And so it's, again, another jumping off point for, my, for doing this film was to answer the question, would I send my son to a school that was 90-something percent black and Latino or Latinx? I'm learning how to say that. Um, and, uh, and that was a really a jarring moment because I suddenly realized that because we had, as a, as a country, as a society, uh, decided that schools that are majority minority are bad. They're lesser than. And we've actually created these systems of, of grading schools, as you touched on, mm -hmm. that take into account very little about what is actually being taught on the campus and what is, what is being achieved on the campus and is all about rating schools as if they're all equal. You know? So... Um, and I got to spend a lot of time on the campus as I was making this film, and I recognized there are a lot of things that are better about Muir today than when I was here when it was a racially diverse school. They aren't, the, what, the only thing that I think is the children are really not getting is that sense 
that they are part of a larger community because the community has turned their backs on them. They did not turn their backs on the community. So I felt that uh, for me, I am not going to participate in the segregation of public schools. I'm going to send my child to whatever local public school that I, in whichever neighborhood, you know, I am choosing to choose. And, and racial diversity will be important in my choice, not secondary. And, and that was important to me that, that other parents start recognizing that by segregating their children, they end up with kids who will end up wearing red hats. And they'll say, or, and, and hating people that they themselves grew up, you know, thinking that we're all getting along. And I see this a lot with UC campuses today where kids come on the UC campus. There's a graduate from, from Muir who's a dean at UC San Diego. And an all-Asian fraternity did a Compton night and dressed with do-rags and 40s. And they couldn't understand what was wrong with that because mm. they'd never grown up. With an African American as a, as a, as a, as a, uh, you know, unless there are tokens perhaps in their in their high schools, um, and and these are the kind of things that are like, th this is why these racial rifts, in my opinion, will never get healed, until, uh, and why the quote by Thurgood Marshall both leads and ends my film, that unless our children can learn to learn together, they're never going to learn to live together. I mean, we all formulate these things early in life. This is the one they have to learn. Anyway, now I'm pontificating, sorry. So you, in the film, looking at John Muir's traditional public high school, um, specifically looking at the, the combination of everything from redlining to re redistricting to a, a local school district, um, breaking off from uh, the Pasadena uh, school district to uh, open enrollment and of course as we mentioned online rankings and all these different factors when you put that all together and look at uh, what it has done to the the racial makeup of the school and you think about the national context where this is happening everywhere and again you know Pasadena uh, just outside of Los Angeles a lot of people think of California as being on the liberal side of things and when they think about uh, segregation and racial strife they tend to think down south or something mm -hmm. like that so when you think about just the national context and how this has happened do you see a racially integrated school system in our future? And if so, what would it take to get there? Because we've discussed this before. Yeah. And I, I, I think, you know, change like that requires a certain amount of revolution. Yeah. Okay. And I've had a, some fun conversations around this because honestly, I'm just a parent. I'm just a filmmaker. I'm not a politician. I'm not right. anyone with any power. But I think two steps have to happen right without anything first to run for public office your children have to go to public school you do that and public education starts going through the roof right I know it's impractical people say you know you're taking away somebody's right to choose and and this is but this is the sort of thing if you don't have a skin in the game and this is the problem with with the public education middle class of all races are abandoning the public schools and if the middle class has the clout financially then you're just creating a, you know, a place for, you know, I, I was explaining to a lot of the alumni of this, of John Muir, who said, oh, but we were fine, we were fine. I said, look at that same population that's there now was there always. Those are the kids who don't have the financial privilege of going to a private school or traveling to a better school or buying a house in a better district. This school, John Muir High School, within this community, is the best opportunity for them 
for bettering their lives. That is why public education is foundational to our democracy. And the less we participate, the less chance it has to succeed. So since race, unfortunately, is our biggest sin and it infects everything we have. So if we're going to try to solve that problem, we have to do things like integrate. There's no segregating and then saying things will just get better on their own. You know, that just doesn't happen. Um, So I don't know if I answered your question, but that's where I ended up. (laughs) I think um, so part of what I also enjoyed about the film is I think you lay out uh, in through this like microcosm of one one school and one city. um, All of the kind of layers that are structural barriers to to actually creating the kind of integration that existed for a window of time here uh, in Pasadena and at, and at John Muir High School, but has been kind of systematically undermined uh, since that point. So, um, you know, the, the separation, the fragmentation of the school district because a more affluent part of the, um, of the district uh, incorporates into its own school district. Um, the you know the redistricting within the district and sort of reinforcing greater racial segregation, um, school choice policies and and all of these kind of layer upon layer of things that sort of tilt the incentives, um, if that's the right language, heavy in the direction of of segregate. Um, but yet you end the film with this sort of compelling personal statement about your own choice and i think you just you know alluded to your to your thinking or explained your thinking on that yeah. so i'm wondering um you know i agree with you and i think that um i'm not yet a parent but i um would like to think that i would make a very similar intentional decision to what you're to what you described i'm wondering though you know in the grand scheme of things is this a is this a viable path for us to actually get to to integration Honestly, it's the only available one currently. The, the discussion has now gone uh, that where government is not even allowed constitutionally to create desegregation plans. So the idea that the government is going to solve this problem, it's out the window. So it's now really up to the parents. If the parents are willing to make integration a priority, then the monies and the politicians will follow. There's a really good group called Integrated Schools. They have a website, integratedschools.org, where parents from all over the United States talk about how it is that primarily them as white, privileged parents can, you know, go against the, uh, not just the perception in the greater community, but honestly, the hostility of other white privileged parents because they have chosen to send their children to the local minority majority schools, or they call them world population majority schools. I'm still learning that too, sorry. Um, And the conversations on on their chats are just mind blowing because um, for a lot of them, they've never had a truly integrated experience. They just know that it's wrong, Right. right? from my film's perspective, is that I did have that experience. I know that it's beneficial. I see it in my friends. I see it in the reunion that I show in the film. And so for me, it's not theoretical. To me, it's truth. An integrated education makes for better citizens, makes for better people. So 
um, and because the government has punted, um, it has to be parents. Parents are the only ones who can do this. Yeah. So parental choice, but when we discuss choice in education circles, the discussion tends to go right. charters and, and, and what have you. But right. you're talking about parents explicitly choosing to send their kids to their local public high schools right. and integrate their traditional public high schools. Correct, I, I think choice has to be flipped on its head. Yeah. Choice has been used as a excuse to segregate. Yeah. But if we can turn choice into a movement towards integration and support for communities that are disenfranchised versus just how do I make, you know, it was very well said by a friend of mine who was a hippie in the 60s, but he said, you know, what's wrong with America is that right now everybody thinks what's best for me is best for everybody. But when he was an activist in the 60s, it's what's best for everybody is best for me. And he says, we have to get back to that, you know, because right now we have lost our way. Uh, here, here. Yeah. <laughs> I think on that note, um, I, I do want to mention briefly, you have, you feature a uh, young-ish history teacher in this film. <laughs> yes. Who uh, was only in there for a, a, a brief moment, but I think really, I, I, I mean, I really think he put the cherry on top on uh, otherwise uh, excellent stellar film. Um, so Pablo, thank you for sharing a bit about your film. Educators, if you're watching or listening, parents, if you're watching or listening, um, definitely head to getalongfilm.com. Dot com. Dot com. Dot com and, uh, and check it out. It's, it, you, won't, you won't regret it. It's an excellent film that details the segregation history of one school, but the story of that school uh, echoes throughout the nation and really helps inform our understanding of uh, race and schooling in America today in our modern context. So, Pablo. Thank you very much. No, thank here. you guys. I really appreciate it. All right. All right, folks. Next up is class dismissed. Jeff, we brought a filmmaker on set. That we did. That yeah. was a great discussion. It was, man. It was. Fascinating film. I really want to encourage everyone to go see it. No, I mean, absolutely. Just a, just a great, great film getalongfilm.com we'll link to the on, on our website and um definitely check it out it has a runtime of about uh, 39 40 minutes so um it's something that even if you're not familiar at all with the context of southern california very not just very digestible but also very very intriguing and will definitely push your thinking in regards to race and um, schooling all right so now it's time for class dismiss where we give special shout outs to people doing great work in the education arena and for today's class dismiss we would like to send a very sincere and Heartfelt salute to Stuart Beagle, longtime faculty member at the UCLA Graduate School of Education and Information Sciences and the UCLA School of Law, who is a pioneer in several aspects of education policy and education law. Uh, Stuart Beagle passed away um, back in April, and he was a pioneer of law as it relates to cyberspace and the, and the, and the growth of the internet, and he also helped create Center X at UCLA, which is a very powerful, powerful group that takes on matters of equity and inequities in um, public schools. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I'm glad we're giving this shout out today. I, I do some work through my through my job with uh, with UCLA and with Center X. Um, and uh, Stuart Beagle, unfortunately, is someone I, I didn't have a chance to meet. Um, but I know lots of students who've been in his class and yeah, faculty who've truly. worked with him and um, really never heard anything other than like wonderful, positive comments about 
uh, about the experience of being in his class, about his scholarship. And so I think we, um, we lost someone who really uh, gave not only a great career, but a lot of interesting ideas and, and values to, um, to this profession we call education. So um, our thoughts are with the, the UCLA community and, and certainly rest in peace, uh, Stuart Beagle. Indeed. We also like to give a quick shout out to my pops, my pops passed away recently after a long battle with cancer, and my pops was a very big fan of this show. He's not an educator, he's a lifelong military man, and he had his, our show bookmarked on the front home screen of his, of his phone, and throughout his cancer treatments, he was watching our show and all the episode extras on our site and giving me uh, great feedback. Um, absolutely best father in the world. So, love you, Dad, miss you. And that about does it for this episode of All of the Above. Uh, be sure to subscribe if you haven't already, and we will see you next time.